We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Sheehan drops it. Another opportunity. Side of the net in front and it's in. And the Capitals get the power play goal. This is unbelievable. Alex Ovechkin having a night. That was the second of what would be a hat trick night for the great eight. The third goal, which you'll hear a little later on in the show, was historic number 800. What a night for Alex Ovechkin in Chicago. He's one goal away from tying Gordie Howe, two goals away from passing Howe on the all-time goals list. We are a game or two or maybe three away from Gretzky one, Ovi number two, Uh, Greg Wyshynski, one of my favorite guests, senior NHL analyst for ESPN, will jump on with us for the final segment of the show today. You'll hear the call of number 800 last night in Chicago with Steve Levy on the call for ESPN uh, as well. Look, there's no debating this. Not that we needed last night to come to this conclusion. Alex Ovechkin, in modern sports history, is the greatest team sport athlete in the history of this city. You know, if you take Walter Johnson and Sammy Baugh out of the conversation, because those two are the other two that would be in consideration, uh, but if we go with modern sports history defined as, let's just say, the last 50 years, the last half century, Ovechkin is number one, no doubt. The conversation would really be about who's number two. I'd go with Daryl Green. Uh, if we're just talking about pro team sport athletes, Patrick Ewing's four years at Georgetown would be in the conversation with Daryl for number two if we were considering college players that have played in this city. Uh, I'd still have Daryl number two in front of Patrick, um, but if we're talking uh, just pro, Daryl would be my clear-cut number two, and then it would be Elvin Hayes, Wes Unseld from the Bullets, uh, Art Monk, John Riggins, Sonny Jurgensen, Ken Houston, probably from uh, the Skins, Max Scherzer. You know, that's probably the list for where number three would come from. Uh, but it would be Ovechkin clear cut number one. And I think if we're just talking about pro sports athletes, uh, Daryl Green number two on the list. And then the debate would be about number three. And I'd have, again, Daryl in front of Patrick Ewing anyway as number 
uh, too. More on Ovechkin's night coming up, uh, his place in history. Uh, more on the Caps' fifth straight win. Yeah, they won last night 7-3 to in Chicago with Greg Wyshynski later on in the show. Also on the show today, Dan Duggan, who covers the Giants for The Athletic. We'll get Dan's thoughts on the upcoming game Sunday night and really his thoughts on the last game against Washington uh, as well. So Dan will be coming up uh, in the next segment. The show today is brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag, use my promo code KevinDC, and MyBookie will match your first deposit dollar for dollar all the way up to 1000 bucks. If something's written in the promo code section, erase it and write Kevin DC, and they'll give you free money. They're going to double your first deposit, again, all the way up to $1,000. Um, and uh, right now I'm just looking at my bookie. The Thursday night game tomorrow night, a significant game in the NFC. Uh, again, I may have mentioned this yesterday, but the 49ers laying just three and a half at Seattle. That reeks. I think Seattle will be the first smell test pick uh, of the weekend. And then uh, Sunday night, Washington right now at my bookie is still minus four and a half. Uh, my bookie is fair. They've got fair point spreads. They've got fair pricing. You get paid if you win. Go to mybookie.ag and again, use my promo code KevinDC for a doubling of your first deposit. Uh, Also, don't forget to rate us and review us on Apple and Spotify or wherever you can rate us and review us. On Apple, it allows you to rate us one to five stars. Uh, Five stars are nice. Uh, Appreciate that if you can do that uh, and write a uh, one to two sentence review. Anonymous on uh, Apple Podcasts gave us more um, than a one to two sentence review. He gave us five stars and then wrote, I've been a huge fan since wearing Redskins jammies during the 1972 Super Bowl with the Over the Hill Gang. I cried when Roger the Dodger crushed our playoff hopes in 79. Yeah, that game I think is probably number one on the list of the absolute most destroyed and upset I have ever been after a game. Uh, 34-21, to 21, and Roger Staubach brings the Cowboys back with two touchdowns in the final two and a half minutes of the game, including the game winner to Tony Hill with 42 seconds left. And then Mosley didn't get a chance to kick what would have been a 59-yard field goal at the gun because they let the final two seconds run off the clock, despite Don Warren and Joe Theismann screaming for a timeout. That is the most devastating loss for me. I think number two would be Corey Lucius's shot to uh, end Gravis Vasquez's career in the second round of the 2010 NCAA tournament. That was awful. Uh, but the 79 playoff loss was, you know, I've talked about it many times, but it was the difference between the number one seed in the NFC playoffs with home field advantage and being completely out because Chicago had beaten the Cardinals earlier in the day 44 to 6 and the point def- differential was a tiebreaker between the Bears and Washington for the wild card spot. Uh god that was awful. If they had had the two point conversion back then, uh Washington would have gone for two after the last touchdown in the fourth quarter which was a John Riggins 66 yard touchdown run. Um, and maybe they would have had a 35-21 to 21 lead and the game would have gone to overtime. But they didn't have the two-pointer back then. And they were not as precise with the clock uh, because that game would have been a game where they would have put 
two seconds back on the clock and given Mark Mosley a chance at a 59-yard field goal to win the game. And he did have the leg for it. He did. He was one of the, one of the few kickers in the game that had the leg for it. By the way, Anonymous continues. I remember the fatigues game. Um, I remember a happy birthday, Joe Theismann. Yeah, that was a bad Monday night opener in Dallas. I remember Mosley kicking in the snow. Uh, speaking of that, there will be something on that specific game tomorrow here on the podcast. Uh, he said, I remember seat cushions. Um, and he goes on and on. There is lots in here about the various games he remembers um, I really do appreciate the very nice review, uh, Anonymous. You, too, can re- review us and rate us um, wherever they uh, allow you to do that, uh, but definitely on Apple, five stars and a quick one- to two-sentence review uh, would be much appreciated. Um, so I got this tweet from Derek. Uh, you can tweet me at Kevin Sheehan, D.C., about the conversation that Tommy Uh, and I were having yesterday about the kind of crowd we should expect on Sunday night. Derek wrote, yes, I think the crowd will be a good one, not the best, but a good one. But you missed the game, Sheehan, at FedEx. 2004 opener against Tampa Bay, Portis, Joe Gibbs' return, place was awesome. Derek, that is a good one. And you're right. I miss that because that opener in 2004, Joe Gibbs' first game back, really, you know, that's that's the top of the list of, of Snyder's good moves, which is a very short list. You know, bringing Joe Gibbs out of retirement in 2004 was just a miracle, and it was something that energized this fan base like really nothing has. You know, RG3 in 2012 did it to a certain degree. Um, but Gibbs coming back in 2004 is number one on the all-time Snyder good moves list. And that opener against Tampa Bay um, in September of 2004, I mean, the crowd was lit. Lit. And this was Clinton Portis's first carry in that game. Portis, welcome to Washington. Clinton Portis, goodbye. No flags. 64 yards on Portis's first carry. Uh, they went on to win that game 16 to 10. It was close. And it would be a harbinger, by the way, of things to come. Um, it was not a great offensive team uh, that first year um, in uh, Joe Gibbs's return, but it was a tough team. And it was a team that kept getting better as the season went along. They got off to a one and four start. But, you know, typical of Joe, uh, they won three out of their last five games, and the two losses were super close. Uh, there was a loss in Dallas in the next to last game of the year that was really, really a game in which Washington dominated. And Vinny Testaverde, with 30 seconds to go in the game, hit Patrick Creighton on a 40-yard touchdown pass that won that game. But, man, they were low-scoring games uh, that year. Uh, Washington really struggled to score uh, with that team. But they did knock, if you recall, Randy Moss and the Minnesota Vikings out of the playoffs on the final Sunday of the year. Remember Moss leaving the field early? He was in such disgust. Um, and that you know set up what would become a successful 2005 season. But Derek, you're right. You're right. That Tampa game uh, was 
uh, a raucous crowd, regular season crowd. I looked up the attendance for that game, 90,098. The all-time NFL Redskins crowd at FedEx Field was the 2007 finale against the Cowboys when the Cowboys had nothing to play for and Washington needed to win to get a wild card spot. Remember, this was the four-game win with Todd Collins at the end of 2007 following Sean's uh, tragic death. 90,910. That was the biggest crowd ever. Uh, at FedEx, the the 2012 season ender, they had already begun to reduce the capacity. That crowd was just over 82,000 for the season ender against the Cowboys for the division title in 2012. Um, so 90,910 in the 2007 finale is the largest crowd to ever see an NFL game at FedEx. The largest crowd period to ever see a football game at FedEx was 91,665 for the 2004 season opener between USC, who was ranked number one, and Virginia Tech. And I do remember that game, and I had people who were at that game say, that's the loudest FedEx has ever been, was that Virginia Tech versus Southern Cal game in 2000. Uh, and four. Um, but anyway, Derek, thanks. Yes, that Tampa game and the Joe Gibbs uh, seasons there. Um, really, really good crowds. 2005, of course, and and then uh, six and, and seven. It really felt like that four-year period that things were kind of back to normal. Um, and they went to the playoffs twice uh, during those four years. Um, I'm thinking not a sellout for Sunday night, but close. And I think I told Tommy, you know, he said I was delusional when I said, what did I say, 75-25? Um, I don't know. Somewhere around 70-30, Washington to New York fans. Real good crowd, I think, Sunday night. Not a sellout, I don't think. It'll be close, though. Um, there are just too many tickets that I'm seeing right now that are available. If Washington wins Sunday night, they'll have their best record through 14 games, 8-5-1, and since 1992. When Washington beat Dallas 20 to 17 on a fumble recovery in the end zone by Danny Copeland. All right, that was the Cowboys uh, Super Bowl season, the 92 Cowboys. Washington needed a couple of wins there and then needed some help after losing their season finale to the Raiders to get into the postseason. But when they beat Washington, uh, when they beat the Cowboys, they uh, improved to nine and five from eight and five. But how incredibly pathetic is that? You know, if they win Sunday night, 8-5-1 and one will be their best 14-game mark in 30 years. You know, not 12-2, and two, not 11-3, and three, not even 10-4. and four. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, I, I know I go to this every once in a while, but if someone had told me in 1992 when they beat the Cowboys that day at RFK, I was there. It was a wild ending to that game. Washington failed on fourth down to score in a 17-13 game, and then they, uh, then Aikman, literally under pressure uh, in the end zone, gets hit by Jason Buck. The ball's loose. Nobody knows who's recovered it. And Co- Copeland uh, actually has the ball, and he's running around out on the field saying, look, I got it. I was in the end zone. If somebody told me on that particular day that this is as good as it's going to be late in a regular season for the next 30 years, wow. 
And by the way, let's be clear, a win Sunday night wouldn't be better than it was in 1992. 8-5-1 isn't better than 9-5, but it would be the best since. Um, my reaction, if somebody had told me that in the moment, you know, in December of 1992, this is as good as it's going to be for the next 30 years, I would have thought that they were under the influence. Um, but whoever said that back in ni- 1992, if they had said it, uh, would have been right. Um, you know, and it would have been like, okay, let's enjoy 1992. Because that season, they ended up backing into the playoffs then won a game at Minnesota, and then lost a close game in the divisional round against the 49ers, and that was Joe Gibbs' final game. Uh, he retired a couple of months later in March of 1993. Um, all that aside, though, this team at 7-5-1 with a chance to get to 8-5-1, I think it's a good team. I don't think this is a fluke. It's not, you know, what they've produced in the past, you know, these late-season runs to make the postseason sort of backdoor style. You know, this team, with still four games left, it looks like a playoff team to me. Not a Super Bowl contender, but a team that looks like a team that should be in the playoffs. Uh, Should be and will be aren't the same thing. I understand that. uh, But I do think they're better than the Giants. And while I would never say with this particular team that any game is a should-win game, I do think they're better than New York. I think they're better than the Giants. But the Giants have found a way to play everybody, for the most part, closely. Despite what I would call a lack of talent, you know, on that roster, like, I think it's clear that Washington has better players. I do. But the Giants are well-coached, and they have found a way all season long to keep it close. They have not won a game in a month. And they've only won one time in the last month and a half. But in their losses over the last month, month and a half, you know, they've like they were during their their seven and two start when they won seven games. Um, every game's tight. You know, their seven wins this year are all by eight points or less, you know, all one score games in effect. The five games the Giants have lost, they've either had the lead or been tied heading into the fourth quarter in three of them. Last week was the one game this year where they really got hammered. You know, the Lions game was 31-18 to that they lost, but they were kind of in that game. They just kept turning the ball over. They've been a team like Washington where they've played most of their games in a way in which winning and losing were basically during the game like even money odds. Daniel Jones, I was looking this up against Washington. I think we all know that he's played well against Washington. 4-1-1 one one as a starter. Um, but uh, in the games against Rivera's teams, he is 2-1-1 one one against Rivera's teams starting in 2020. The average margin in the four games that Daniel Jones has started against Washington is one point per game. All right, 23 to 20, 20 to 19, 30 to 29, and 20 to 20 are the final scores of the four games that Daniel Jones has started against Ron Rivera's teams. He did not play in the season finale last year that Washington won 22 to 7. But how about that? I mean, does anybody really think Sunday night's going to be that much different? Again, I do think Washington is better. 
But coaching, quarterback, a great player like Saquon Barkley, I don't know. This one feels like it's going to be tight, like a few plays will decide it. You know, turnovers are going to be huge. Mentioned this yesterday on the podcast that Washington is plus six um, during this, you know, stretch, whereas they were minus six during that one and four start. Um, It's pretty obvious how critical turnover margin has been for them during this streak uh, and how big turnover margin will be on Sunday night. Turnovers in the 20 to 20 tie, 1 1. You know, one more turnover in that game, either way, would have been the difference in the game. For Washington, Ron Rivera said this yesterday about the team's biggest, biggest question mark areas quarterback and offensive line. Listen. Well, you know, with Taylor, you know, as with pretty much any quarterback, is, is again, their, their ability to, to move and slide within the pocket, um, that helps them. Um, in, in terms of pass protection, but I think if you're going to help, you got to be able to run the football and 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 be able to take it downhill and be physical and and then offset that with good play action, um, and and be aware of putting yourself more in third and short than than third and long. I mean, that's the last thing you want to do is be in passing situations and have a long way to go. So I think Michael, that the best thing we can do is you know, really be able to run the ball successfully or just be really good on first and second down, whether you're throwing the ball quickly and getting it out of the quarterback's hands um, or you're going play action uh, or you're running it. Uh, you you have to be efficient. This is Ron Rivera just emphasizing, you know, the formula. Not that we needed it. I mean, staying ahead of the chains. You know, being in third and short, not third and long. That's what they have to be. It's actually really interesting when you consider the first Giant game that they were 3 of 14 on third down overall, third and 21, three third and 13s, four third and 10s, and a third and eight in the game. And they were able to tie the football game. So that's encouraging, you know, as it relates to this particular matchup that they were in these third and longs consistently and they didn't lose the game. Because I think if anybody told any of us before the game, 3 of 14 and they're going to be in third and long consistently, we would have said loss. Uh, But the defense was outstanding. And, um, you know, a lot of those third and longs were with them moving the football and possessing the football and then having some negative plays. You know, penalties, sacks, but after they had possessed the ball for a while and at the very least flipped the field. Remember, I told you about the eight-minute possession that started at their five-yard line and only gained 38 yards but ate up eight minutes. So those are the things that, you know, the quirky things that will add up to not being very good on third down, but, but ending up in a tie against an opponent that you are, I think, slightly better than. Um, And then yesterday we learned this about Carson Wentz. Here was Ron Rivera on Wentz's availability for Sunday night. He's he's looked good. He he had he's had a couple of good weeks of of work. Um, the first week he was on the side. The second week he was integrated into to some of the offense, uh, some of the defensive stuff. Um, uh, he threw with uh, the receivers, and uh, then last week he was off. And so you know we chose not to make the move last week. 
And then we made the move uh, this, uh, yesterday um, to activate him and uh, think everything should go accordingly. He will be the, he will be the primary backup going into this game and we'll go from there. He'll be the backup and we'll go from there. Uh, I got a couple of tweets from some of you about that line. Look, you know what it means, all right? You know what it means. Ron Rivera's had plenty of chances to just say, Taylor Heineke's the starting quarterback the rest of the way. And in in almost every single circumstance, he's talked about it being week to week. And we'll go from there with Wentz yesterday. Wentz is going to be the backup. That means we know for sure he's healthy enough to play for the first time. I believe the leash is short. I don't think I felt this way prior to last weekend, but I think the leash is short. I think if they had lost the game to the Giants in the Meadowlands, 23-13, to if the center doesn't get called for taunting, I think we'd be getting ready for a Carson Wentz start Sunday night. You know, I do. I believe that. I'm not saying that I'm in favor of it, as I've said previously. I think I'd stick and ride this out with Heineke. But why do you, is the lease short? Why would they have considered Wentz had they lost the game, even though at that point Taylor's record would have been 5-2 and two versus 5-1-1? One and one? Um, Because they're in this to be the best that they can be. And Taylor's record as the starting quarterback of this team this year is very much a product of a lot of things before you get to him. You know, the list of why they are 5-1-1 in their last seven, 6-1-1 in their last eight, it starts with defense, you know, and then it goes to the running game. And then you count a few spaces and you go to the coaching staff. And then you, you know, count a couple more spaces and you get to Taylor Heineke's X factor is the way I'll describe it. More than really Taylor's play on the field. He ranks near the bottom of almost every statistical category, whether it's an analytics group like PFF or DVOA, Football Outsiders, or even traditional numbers. His performance and really, you know, the team's overall passing performance is more reflective of a team that in the last seven games should be three and four, you know, not five, one and one. But they are five and one, five one and one, mostly because of a defense and a running game and fifteen takeaways. But what makes this complicated for the coaching staff is that, you know, there is an X factor in three games in which the team went two one and one in those three in those games, or I'm sorry, in four games in which the team went two one and one. Taylor's play with the game on the line was significant to the outcome. The Green Bay game, the third and nine completion to Terry McLaurin that for all intents and purposes ended the game, didn't give Green Bay enough time with the ball back to win the game. The Indianapolis game, two fourth down conversions on the drive that produced a field goal down 16 to seven and a fourth uh, a fourth down conversion throw uh, in the drive when they were down 16-10. to 10. You never get to the Terry McLaurin 50-50 ball without Taylor converting two crucial fourth downs on the road in the fourth quarter against Indianapolis. I'd throw the Philadelphia game into the equation because he baited, baited the late hit that led to an automatic first down 
on a weird play, but what a gamer kind of a play that was. And then, of course, the fourth and four against the Giants and that final drive where that wasn't the only good play on that final drive. I think the best play and the best throw he made was to Curtis Samuel on the play before the touchdown pass to Jahan Dotson. But, you know, that's what complicates it, right? Is that in a couple of key moments in four of the games, um, you know, he produced plays that led to, I said a 2-1-1 record, um, a 3-0-1 record, 3-0-1. I didn't mean to say 2-1-1, 3-0-1. They won the Green Bay game, they won the Indy game, they won the Philly game, and they tied the Giants game. So that, you know, it's hard to yank a guy for making, you know, in four, in, in, in four games, four key games, key plays that influence the outcome. Now, if someone said to you before the last seven games, the team's going to have one of the worst pass offenses in the league, right? 29th right now in DVOA ranking per football uh, outsiders, you know, and lots of other statistical categories with respect to the quarterback in particular that speak to really losing record. If someone said bad passing offense, but they also said really good defense and running game, you'd still only say, eh, four and three, something around there. You wouldn't say five, one, and one. You wouldn't say that with one of the lowest-rated, worst-pass offenses in the league, and by the way, the inability to score consistently, you wouldn't say, yeah, they're only going to lose one of those games. And that's why the leash is short. That's why it's short. Because they see that too. Now, what's interesting is that he might be on a short leash, but in his case, at least there's a leash because he's still the starter. And these next few games, and personally, I think he's going to get two minimum, or I would give him two minimum. I would give him this one and the 49er game. Uh, what an opportunity for him. If he runs the offense like he has, you know, the majority of the time, avoids the killer, awful plays, whether it's luck or he just avoids them, which leads to the avoidance of one of those horrendous games like he had at the end of last year, and the team wins enough to get into the postseason and throw in another magical play or two at the end of a game in a couple of these wins at the end of the season, um, he's going to be a guy that ultimately kept a guy that you traded for, spoke highly of, is earning $28 million a year and was the starter. He's going to be the guy that kept that guy from getting the job back, his job back. And that could be the impetus to a very interesting off-season conversation. Again, I'm with him for the next two. I'm still not convinced that Wentz is an obvious better solution. And I just don't think you can pull a guy who the rest of the team prefers unless it's really obvious that he shouldn't be out there in front of the other guy. But for me, so far, it hasn't been obvious. So I'd stick with him. Uh, All right. Uh, Dan Duggan coming up in the next segment. I did want to mention real quickly, Maryland plays UCLA tonight at Xfinity Center. Still a few tickets left. Uh, UMD uh, Terps, uh, UM Terps, I'm sorry, umterps.com. 
Um, it'll be a, an electric building tonight, even if it isn't a complete sellout. The students have sold out their allotment for a while. It'll be the first time UCLA's been back in College Park for a game since 40 years ago. 40 years ago, Lefty beat UCLA 80-79 to in double overtime. That was a team that featured Ben Coleman, Herman Veal, Adrian Branch, Len Bias as a freshman, and they beat Rocket Rod Foster, Kenny Fields, and a UCLA team that in December of 1982 was ranked third in the country. That was the first win for Lefty over UCLA. He had had two cracks at him in the 70s. One in a very famous game that kicked off the 1973-1974 season at Pauley Pavilion with UCLA having a massively long winning streak during the Walton uh, uh, era. And Maryland lost 65-64. to They had the ball with a chance to take the lead in the final few seconds. And John Lucas, a freshman, turned the ball over. Uh, sophomore or freshman? Um, at the time, turned the ball over at the end of the game. And UCLA scored on a breakaway layup that came kind of at the buzzer and lefty ran to the scorer's table and talked the referees out of counting the final bucket. He thought losing by a point to UCLA at Pauley Pavilion looked much better than losing by three. Maryland would be a top five team all year. UCLA um, would make it back to a Final Four and lose to NC State that year. Uh, the NC State team that beat Maryland in the in the all-time ACC tournament final, one of the greatest college games ever played, 103 to 100. Maryland then played UCLA again in 1975 at Cole Fieldhouse in the re, in the rematch, a very hyped regular season game. Maryland lost that game by 11, and then it would be another seven years before Maryland would face UCLA at home again, and they beat UCLA 40 years ago. Uh, in December of 1982, 80-79 uh, to 79 in double overtime. Maryland and UCLA have played, you know, uh, uh, several times since. they play, Maryland played at Pauley, um, I think, once or twice. They played in the NCAA tournament in 2000. They played some neutral floor games against one another. UCLA blew Maryland out in 2000 in the second round of that tournament, and then Maryland came back in 2001-2002 and made the Final Four and eventually won the national championship. But big-time matchup, UCLA ranked um, right now uh, 14th in the coaches' poll, Maryland 17th in the coaches' poll. Uh, Maryland's a one, one-and-a-half-point favorite. Kind of a big spot for Maryland after two straight losses. I mean, not a game that's going to make or break the season, but it would be nice for them to get a big-time win at home tonight against UCLA. Uh, Go Terps. Up next, Dan Duggan from The Athletic to talk about the Giants uh, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. All right, Sunday night in Landover, the rematch with the Giants on Sunday night football and a massive game in the NFC wildcard race. Washington and the Giants. Dan Duggan covers the Giants for the Athletic, as I've mentioned many times, no matter who it is, Ben Standing, of course, uh, and others. Uh, the Athletic's totally worth it. I'm a subscriber. You should be as well. Uh, you can follow Dan on Twitter at D Duggan, D U G G A N 21. Um, all right, let's start with this, Dan. What happened from uh, 7 and 2? Um, to where they are right now at seven, five, and one. How different of a team is it from the team that started the first half of the year? It's really not that much different. Uh, so since you gave the athletic a plug, I actually wrote a story on Tuesday where I broke down you know, the ten biggest reasons because it's not just any one thing. But the number one reason I pointed to was like regression was inevitable. Like this is the same roster that everybody looked at in the summer and said they'll be lucky if they win five or six games. So obviously uh, they significantly overachieved. You know during that six and one, seven and two start. But it wasn't like you watched those games like, oh, my gosh, we totally misjudged this team. It's so talented. Like, they're just blowing teams out. Every game was down to the wire. Um, there's sort of just, I feel like, close games in this league, even out. It's really hard to, you know, just run the table in close games. So they were pulling out every game late, and that was great. But you kind of knew at some point their lack of talent, lack of depth would catch up to them. And then really what's probably put it over the edge is injuries, which, you know, obviously is often the case in this league. But, um, you know, take Sunday's game against the Eagles, for instance. They obviously got blown out, but they didn't have Leonard Williams, who's, you know, arguably their best defensive lineman. They didn't have Adore Jackson, who's unquestionably their best cornerback. And they didn't have Xavier McKinney, who's a borderline Pro Bowl safety. So you take those three guys out of a defense that was, you know, pretty thin to begin with. That's just kind of insurmountable when you face an offense as good as Philly. And, you know, they're facing good teams. They face Dallas. Um, you know, they face Seattle. They're going to start this kid. So uh, a lot of those factors have, have kind of, combined to result in this slide but it's not like it's not shocking you know you, you know you get off that good start you think all right they're they're in a really good place but you kind of felt like at some point it's gonna be tough to continue to maintain that level of play 
Yeah, you know, it's funny because obviously as a division foe, uh, we pay attention to the other teams in the division and understood you were winning all those close games. But the truth is, you know, you guys had a lead, even though you were very injured on Thanksgiving at Dallas, you know, at halftime. You certainly had a chance in that game you lost to Seattle. I think that game was tied in the fourth quarter. And obviously, if not for a taunting penalty against your center uh, in the Washington game, that game would have been a winning uh, game. So it is interesting. You know, you mentioned a couple of the injured players, and I was going to ask you about them, and I don't want to forget. Leonard Williams, McKinney, Jackson, are they going to play? I mean, you got Ojolari back for the Washington game uh, two weeks ago, and that was, you know, he was awesome in that game. What about the health for Sunday? Yeah, I mean, Ojolari, it's like he's making up for lost time. He's played for four games. I think he has like four sacks and a couple strip sacks, and he's been a, a big boost to get him back. Uh, Leonard Williams, I would say, is probably 50 50. We'll find out, you know, this afternoon how much he does on the practice field, but. Uh, it's crazy because he's been an Ironman his first seven years, and all of a sudden this year he missed three games early in the season with a knee injury. Then he missed Sunday. He left that Washington game with a neck injury. Then right. missed the Philly game. Um, he was on the practice field at the end of last week. wasn't doing anything. So that's like a a first step. I don't know if there's enough time for him to you know go you know do some more rehab, get in actual practices, test it out. Um, I would think he'll play just because of his track record. But I don't know the extent of his injury, so maybe he won't be able to. Uh, Adoree Jackson. Now he's missed the last three games since. Kind of the, probably the worst decision Brian Dable's made was putting his number one cornerback at punt returner. And, you know, Dory Jackson has been playing really well at corner, but the one thing with him is he has an injury history, so it's kind of uh, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze there. And then predictably he got injured on a punt return. So uh, he's sort of in the same boat as Leonard Williams as far as where he's at um, progress wise. He was on the field late last week, too, but didn't do very much. Uh, his injury, they said, when it happened, was four to six weeks. So obviously Sunday would be the the top end of that timeline. So I can't, it's hard for me to say. I, again, I probably put him in the 50-50 basket. Again, we'll have a better idea uh, later on Wednesday. And then McKinney, I, I think it's still a long shot. I mean, he had his injury is really what kind of started the spiral. I mean, he went on his bye week down to Mexico and had a really bad hand injury uh, riding an ATV. And he got right. he had pins in three of his hands. It was a pretty gruesome injury. And he got the pins out last week. He's saying, like, club it up. I'll go play. Uh, Brian Dable is much more cautious about that. Saying, you know, I, I think it's, I, I'm not a doctor. I think there's more damage than just your standard broken fingers. So I don't think you can just club it up if there's still a lot of healing that needs to be done with the bones in his hands. So um, he's he's insistent that he's going to come back at some point this season. But obviously the clock is ticking, and I'd be very surprised. Uh, if he's cleared and ready to go for Sunday. Dan, what was the reaction there among the fans, among those of you who cover the team uh, on the beat? What was the reaction to the first game, the 20-20 to tie? Yeah, I mean, I think that the kind of knee-jerk reaction was, you know, they, they let that game slip away. Because, I mean, I granted, you know, Washington was up 10 nothing, But then the Giants took control, and they just had so many opportunities there where their offense just couldn't do anything to put the game away. You know, they had that seven-point lead forever, and obviously Heineke makes that, you know, amazing escape and, you know, kind of just flings it on fourth down. Like, there was so many chances that it could have closed that game out. You mentioned the taunting penalty. That was a killer. Uh, but the, the decision that kind of probably got the most scrutiny was fourth and three at the Washington 45 with, you know, around two minutes to go in overtime, and they like to punt. And, it, you know, it was probably the right call because a loss there would have killed them, whereas a tie really didn't hurt them that much in the standings. But this is the same coach who in week one went for two when they scored against Tennessee right. late, and they get it, and they yeah. win. It kind of galvanized everybody. So then you're in another opportunity to like make a statement, like, yeah, hey, we're going to go for it and win the game. And he didn't do that. So that kind of was like, 
even though I understood it, it sort of was, it, it stood out as a contrast to how he approached early in the season. And I felt like things got a little tighter now that the playoffs uh, are, are in sight. I'm curious. I, I think one of the significant plays in that game, and I and I was looking for a Brian Dable explanation on this. But when Washington, you know, after they punted um, on the on the the fourth down, they took the the delay game and and tried to draw them off sides. Didn't work. They punted. Washington had a play that went out of bounds, and with the clock stopped, the Giants burned their final timeout. Which ended up, you know, costing them a lot of time after the third down run, and may have cost them a chance on the next possession to get into field goal range. What was the reason he called that timeout with the clock stopped? Did you guys ever press him on it or not? Yeah, yeah. So that was one. Initially, I I was like, "What's going on here?" But after kind of just doing some, I guess, background reporting on it, what happened there was the Giants had the most unfortunate force fumble of all time. Uh, because I think it was Robinson. He was going to go out of bounds anyways, and the Giants linebacker, Mike McFadden, he poked the ball up from behind. So the ball went out of bounds on a fumble there. So I think the clock was wrong on TV or something like that because I think it went out of bounds at 123, and it looked like um, – so the Giants called timeout like, at 109. Like, why did they let the time tick off? But then they reset the clock to 123. So I think there was just a clock malfunction. I think, like – once the ball goes out of bounds on a fumble, all, as soon as that ball gets back in bounds, they start the clock because, you know, you can't fumble out of bounds, obviously, in, in, intentionally, and they're not going to uh, determine the intent of that fumble. So he's just gone out of bounds. Yes, the clock would have stopped. Giants would have been able to save the timeout. But since it was knocked out by a fumble, they had to call a timeout to stop the clock because otherwise Washington would have exhausted the whole 40 seconds, and, and you know, obviously then uh, that would have defeated the purpose. So they, they had to call the timeout based on the fumble. Hopefully I did a good job of explaining that, but – that was definitely confusing in the moment. I think the confusion really was, I don't know if you're at the game or watching on TV, I think the clock on TV somehow was, uh, was messed up. Or at least that's where the refs reset it. And they... Yeah. So it was called a fumble inbounds, and so the clock was going to roll. Correct, yeah, because he knocked the ball <laughs> out of bounds. Like, he wasn't out of bounds yet, and I guess you know, the situation there is what, the last two minutes or whatever is you can't. The clock doesn't stop on a fumble out of bounds. Basically. The only thing that I, I mean, that that would, by the way, make total sense. And yeah, I was watching it on TV, and so it looked like the timeout was called with the clock stopped. But I think they called the timeout, you know, a, a, a significant time after the play, like almost before Washington was going to line up and run their third down play with the clock stopped. I, I'd have to go yeah, back yeah, and look at it. Yeah, I think what happened was there must have been some confusion on you know that happened on the other sideline whether the ball like whether they knew it was a fumble whatever. I think the ref basically either gave them the you know like all right it was confusing we'll help you. I don't know like I don't know okay. exactly how that, that worked out, but like yeah. I, it seemed like the clock was at one oh nine and went back to one twenty three. So I'm not sure if the Giants called timeout immediately or there was miscommunication. The ref said, "Well, it's our fault for miscommunication." I don't you know I don't know right. exactly the mechanics of it, but that that's. End of the day, it was one twenty-three either way, so they had to call a timeout, and then I thought that. No, that but I trust me, I, I had the same reaction in lifetime. Yeah, because I was like, "That's huge," um, and because really, I think going into the game, especially when it got to that point, not that we considered tie before the game started, but it was <laughs> like, given that the rematch was back here, I thought kind of a tie benefited Washington a little bit, especially with the Eagles coming right. up for the Giants, but. Um, 
you know, there was a thought that I think a lot of us here had in watching the game. Well, I'll just share with you what my thought was. I really thought Washington was the better team. And at the same time, what you said is I think they also got lucky. Like, both things were true. I thought that they were the better team throughout the game, and yet the taunting penalty for all intents and purposes, and, you know, Heineke got away with a couple of throws um, there that could have gone the other way at the end of regulation, and even on the drive that tied the game, and, you know, it felt like a tie was, you know, a tie, and take it and run with it. But overall, do you feel... In watching these two teams, the Giants are the better team, Washington's the better team, or they're dead even? <laughs> well, you know, the competent answer is to say dead even, seeing as how they just played of course. 70 minutes, and that's how, <laughs> that's how it uh, played out. But it's funny, that kind of goes back to that very first question when you asked me, is like, the coaching staff here has done a tremendous job, because yeah, if you line up these rosters and just do a draft, you're going to take a lot of the Washington players in, that first, in the top 10, and you're going to take more of their starters in the Giants, I'm sure, but... They just do a really good job of like managing the game in a way that it never gets out of hand, that they always are in striking distance. They're, they're seen to be opportunistic. Uh, that's the stuff that's kind of faded a little bit, but in that Washington game, I think you did see that. Because, yeah, I mean, you look at that Washington defensive line against the Giants offensive line. That's a you know, monumental mismatch. You also look at the Washington receivers against the Giants secondary, especially without Adore Jackson. That's a huge mismatch. Huge mismatch sorry. And Washington exploited those, but somehow the Giants still hang around. You know, like they made the big play down the sideline to Darius Slayton where the offense was kind of uh, scuffling at that point. They, need, they, they just kind of make timely plays. They're not a great down-in-and-out down-out team, but they seem to make plays when they count. So like that's sort of that intangible that you can't measure. Because, yeah, I would say Washington has a better roster and when they play again on Sunday night, I'm probably going to pick a three-point game one way or the other because I do think they're still like overall pretty evenly matched teams. Yeah, I mean, you talk about timely plays. I mean, that Slayton play, the catch early, the 55-yarder, but the Slayton drop was massive when mm. uh, because that he was wide open. Uh, still not sure how he got so open, but if he makes that grab, you're already in field goal range at the end of regulation. Weird game um, overall. We're talking to uh, Dan Duggan. Dan covers the Giants uh, for the Athletic. So I- I'm curious, you're – you know, it's 13 games into this thing. Daniel Jones has been a key to to seven wins, five losses, and a tie. What is the the? I mean, we have a lot of conversations right now about the quarterback situation here because I think most of us don't believe that, that Taylor Heineke is the future. But at the same time, he is probably the choice in the present, even over Carson Wentz. What is the short term and then the long term feeling among you guys when it comes to Daniel Jones? Yeah, I mean, listen, that's the question that's really sort of dominated this this team and everything about it in the last couple of years now because, I mean, you had the promising rookie year and then kind of step back with the Joe Judge, Jason Garrett pairing, and then he had the injury last year where he missed the end of the season. So you kind of felt like, all right, year four, they didn't pick up the fifth-year option, new regime. We know Brian Dable has done great work with Josh Allen. Like, this is it. This is the make-or-break year. We're going to know one way or another. And here we are, you know, 13 games into the season, and I still don't know. You know, you'd like to know that either they just went out and were terrible and he was terrible and you just easily pull the Band-Aid off, you're going to have a top-ten pick, go get the replacement. Or the way they started, you're like, listen, if this team wins 12, 13 games, obviously you're not going to move on from them. But it feels like you're going to just fall somewhere in that middle, eight, nine wins, maybe make the playoffs, maybe just miss. And he's been, he's been like, the word I keep using for him, he's been fine. Like, and that's, and that's fine. Like, that's, that's, you can do a lot worse, but you can also do better. So the question is, if they feel like they can do better, 
how do they do better? Because I, I don't think they're going to go out and, you know, great free agent quarterbacks don't really hit the market anyways. I don't think they're going to go do something like that. Draft-wise, and, you know, as, as I mentioned, if they finish around, you know, 8-8-1, eight, eight, eight whatever it might end up being, 9-7-1, be hard to get a quarterback unless you kind of follow that Buffalo blueprint where they traded up a few times to get up and distance to get uh, Josh Allen. But I don't know. Like it's it's crazy. It's, we're this far into his career, we're this far into the season, and there still isn't a clear answer. I mean, there's, he has big supporters, he has big detractors who have you know obviously made their minds up long ago. But as someone who's kind of neutral on him, I don't know. And I think the beauty of it is these next four games will probably go a long way, whether that's fair or not. I mean, if he leads them to the playoffs and you know anything can happen once you get in the playoffs. That obviously is probably going to tilt the scales that direction. If they just kind of continue this slide, and listen, he doesn't have a lot of help, so it wouldn't all be on him. At the same time, like if they just collapse here, I think it would be harder to justify bringing him back rather than just say, let's try something new, Get you know, start the clock over with a new rookie quarterback. So obviously this is not the quarterback Joe Shane and Brian Dable uh, picked. You know, like they inherited him and tried to make the best of it. So that's going to be fascinating. I think Sunday night is the biggest game of his career by far. So how he responds in that, uh, you know, 60 minutes might go a long way to determine the next couple of years of the Giants uh, franchise's trajectory. I always wonder <clears throat> from afar if it's really fair to judge him, you know, in kind of a conclusive way because of the fact that he's had all these different coaches, the fact that there's never been much around him. Uh, I mean, you guys have invested in your offensive line. That's great. But, I mean, what level of playmaking has he had around him other than Saquon Barkley? Like, part of me thinks that he's good enough to to at least see what he would be like with some weapons around him. No, that's, and that's fair. And, like, listen, it's not a fair world because we've said that now for, like, three years. So, at some point, you have to just wonder if it's ever going to happen because the difference is now the economics. Like, if he was in year two or year three, you'd feel great about him going into next year because he'll be on the rookie deal. There's no really decision to make. He's not that bad enough that you're going to, you know, do a Josh, Josh Rosen type thing where you just dump him right away. Like, you would let him grow. The fact that came in didn't pick up that fifth-year option, now the finances come into the equation. Like, well, what's he going to command this year? I have no idea on that. Like, I have to start talking to some league sources because I don't think they'd ever franchise tag him. He's definitely not a $31 million quarterback, I don't think, at this stage. But is he going to be amenable to like a, a kind of bridge two-year, $30, $40 million deal, something like that? I don't know. It's going to be, fast, it's going to be the most fascinating subplot of this whole offseason to me, obviously in the Giants world, but even like league-wise, very rare you have a quarterback who's in the position that he's going to be in. It's just usually you kind of you know or you don't, and now here we are four years in and you still have all these, uh, I don't know, maybe like you can sit on the fence so much. But no, I think to your point, yeah, might not be fair. But just the finance that might drive the decision, well, hey, you know, not everything's fair in this league, so we got we got to move on with a cheaper quarterback. I think that's a distinct possibility. I mean, I'll tell you, as far as the last game goes, I'm not sure that that game ends in a tie without him. I mean, he made a lot of plays in that game under duress, um, and his running always seems to be a factor um, against Washington. All right, I, I'm curious, because around here – you know, as dysfunctional as this franchise has been now for, you know, the, the, the Snyder era, and we're all hopeful that that will be ending at some point um, in the near future. Um, it's also interesting to note that the Giants, you guys haven't been to the postseason in six years, and how hungry is the fan base for a playoff berth. I mean, it's been a while. You know, two Super Bowls in the last 15 years. I mean, uh, obviously that's that's a hell of a lot better than, than Washington has done, but it's been, it's been some time since the Giants have been relevant. How important is this, do you think, to the fan base? How badly do they want it? Yeah, I mean, those Super Bowls are getting further and further in the rear view. It's been a pretty lean decade since that second one, and 
Uh, you know, the five years coming into the season, they retired the Jets for the worst record in the league. So it's not like they've just kind of been mediocre. They've been absolutely, you know, an abject disaster for five years. So this year um, has definitely turned things around. It's funny because coming in, it was like, oh, this is year one of the rebuild. Nobody had any expectations. So now it's funny how things kind of flip. I think there are still some fans who kind of are this, you know, uh, more peaceful outlook on, like, hey, anything they do this year, it's already been a success. Whatever happens, happens. But there's definitely a segment of the fan base who looks at it and say, listen, we started 6-1. We started 7-2. Like, we, w- we want to get in the playoffs. We want to get back in there. Even if you know it's not really a Super Bowl caliber roster, but, like, again, anything can happen to get in the playoffs. You never know. So uh, I think there's more fan base, more of the fan base is on that side of the coin. Like, let's just get in. Like, we're so close. But I do think there is, uh, surprisingly, a, a, a patient segment that's like, listen, they've already overachieved. I feel really good about this new regime. Uh, and anything else is gravy. But, no, I think I think definitely. And forget the fans. Ownership is hungry to start, you know, get back into the playoffs to be a winning team because it's been uh, a brutal stretch for them, firing coaches every two years, replacing GM, stuff that they don't typically like to do. So uh, a, a playoff berth would go a long way uh, for, for the people upstairs. I would think that with all of the questions about Jones, at least one question, and you know it's always early. I mean, there's thirteen; he's thirteen games into it. But I would bet that most people up there think they got it right finally with Brian Dable. Yes, but I would I would also caution that you know Ben McAdoo went eleven and five and made the playoffs, and people are talking about him as a, a dark horse Super Bowl team in 2017, and then we all saw it collapse. Now, listen, I I think that they're different. I think Brian Dable has shown more and. In this season, than what Ben McAdoo did, I'll even go back to Joe Judge. I know that they finished six and ten, but uh, his first season, they finished five and three after just a, you know a terrible start to the season. But there was sort of that feeling of like, oh, the the arrows pointed up, and then obviously things fell apart for him. So I'm a little more cautious because I've kind of seen how how things can flip here pretty quickly. I will say that yes, I I think Brian Dable is is much better than those guys. I think he'll have a nice, long, successful career, but. That does stick in the back of my mind that I think there's been times where you felt like the Giants got their guy, and then within a year they're, they're firing him and starting the process over again. By the way, in 2020, was Rivera a candidate for the Giants job? No, because uh, he took the Washington job actually, pretty quickly before, yeah, before the Giants even started their process, which was a thing where people thought, oh, you know, Dave Gettleman made it get back together. And I don't know what their relationship is, but I don't think it was a uh, close enough one where Rivera was like, going to wait for the Giants to come around and like mm-hmm. was dying to reunite with them. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I remember that being a thing at the time where he was an obvious candidate, but, yeah, I think he took the Washington job before the Giants even officially started their search. All right, two more, uh, and we'll wrap it up. What are the keys from the Giants' perspective to coming in here Sunday night and winning? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, if you look at the, the problems they had in the, in the first game was, again, Washington's defensive line is, is a problem. Uh, even if you look at some of the numbers, they ran the ball, it looks better than I think it was because a lot of those yards, especially for Saquon, were on the end of the half where right. I think Washington was playing the pass and he you know, broke a couple of draws. But down in the down-out, they did not run the ball well. and uh, you know, Jonathan Allen, Darren Payne gave a ton of problems to the interior off the line. So, uh, I mean, that's always kind of point A1 with this team. It's been that way for a number of years. But as this slide has gone on, a lot of it has to do with, like, Dallas's pass rush killed them. Philly's pass rush killed them. Washington's pass rush was a problem. So um, that's, that's where I think it all starts for them. And then on the flip side, again, like the biggest thing is that they can just get Adoree Jackson back because at least he can like credibly cover Terry McLaurin. I mean, I know Terry McLaurin's a great player and has you know had great games against good corners, but they just don't have a chance really with saving Moreau, you know, traveling with him again. That just obviously did not go well. And then there's a trickle down where if Adoree can at least cover Terry McLaurin, then you know the secondary receivers from Washington, you have a better matchup too. So 
Uh, that would be big because if he's out again, you just watch how that first matchup went. Uh, didn't really go well, obviously, for the Giants' secondary. So I think those are the two things. They they just need to get Adore Jackson back, and then offensively they need to figure out a way to neutralize Washington front, which is obviously easier said than done. It's amazing that Daniel Jones, the games he's played against Washington, three-point game, one-point game, one-point game, and a tie. Um, <laughs> these games have been super tight with him at the helm against Washington. Well, I should say, since Rivera got here, against Rivera's uh, Washington uh, teams. Um, all right, you said a field goal either way. Predict it. Oof, yeah, I mean... I guess I'm going to pick the Giants, and I don't think anyone who follows me would accuse me of being a homer, but it feels kind of like a homer pick. I don't have a strong conviction one way or the other. Again, I think it's going to be a really close game, and maybe I can just pick a tie again for fun. But, um, yeah, I mean, they're evenly matched teams. I know the fact that it's in Washington should work against the Giants, but I don't know. I mean, maybe it's some, maybe I'm still buying into some of that magic I saw earlier in the year where they just seem to find a way to pull games out. Now, I know that that's missing lately, but I just maybe they have one last one in reserve here where they can pull out a – a close game. Uh, again, I, I'd be surprised if something does not come out of the wire just based on the stakes and the, the, the way the team's matched up and obviously what we saw two weeks ago. Yeah, you know, too, also, um, and I'm sure you have followed this to a certain degree from afar, but of the other three NFC East fan bases, it's been the giant fan base that hasn't really taken over FedEx Field, like the Cowboy fan base does and the mm-hmm. Philadelphia fan base does. And there's an expectation, I think, for the first time in a long time that there might be actually a legitimate home field advantage uh, for Washington on Sunday night. We'll see how that plays out. But um, it's been a while in a big game since they've really felt like they, they were the home team in that stadium. Uh, but anyway, Dan, thank you so much um, again uh, follow Dan on Twitter at dduggan21. Uh, he is the Ben Standig uh, equivalent for the athletic covering the Giants, and he did a great job here. I appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the trip down in the game. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. When we come back, uh, we will get back to Alex Ovechkin's historic night last night in Chicago with one of my favorites, Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer for ESPN.com. We'll get to that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. Four check. Mantha centers in front. Kuznetsov had the shot. Loose and there it is. Eight hundred. Alexander Ovechkin has done it. And here come the hats and the team. <laughs> you have just witnessed the 800th goal for Alex Ovechkin. Yeah, that was number 800 last night in Chicago. Ovechkin with the hat trick. What a response, by the way, from the Chicago fans. Um, Big-time hockey crowd there. And now he is one away from tying Gordie Howe for number two on the list, two away from passing him. Three home games to do it coming up uh, as well. Greg Wyshynski is one of my favorites. He is a senior NHL writer at ESPN, uh, at Wyshynski, W-Y-S-H-Y-N-S-K-I on Twitter. So I I just want to start with this. 800, what does it signify to you um, and to all of the hockey people? Like, what was the reaction last night? I know hat trick was kind of surprising, but what does 800 mean to you? <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it was uh, it was relief uh, because he, he scored a hat trick and, and scored 800 goals on our airwaves, which was kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> 
you know, we, we've been tracking him and, and trying to get as many Caps games on ESPN as we could. So to have it happen last night the way it did was pretty cool. Uh, it, you know, it's it's an incredible achievement. I mean, I, I certainly, as as everyone knows, have followed Ovechkin throughout his career when I was living in D.C. and then, you know, elsewhere as well. And, and to think back to the guy that would score goals and electrify the crowd and put up big numbers as a young player, I, I, don't, I certainly never thought it would continue like this. <laughs> I mean, I... We've seen so many incredible goal scorers in the last 25 or 30 years who reach a certain point in their, in their career, and then the skills atrophy, or the legs go, or they, they, you know, they, they don't have the same hunger that they do to achieve statistically. And it's never been the case with Ovi. I mean, for me, 800 signifies a, a unique physical specimen who plays the game with power and, uh, and durability. It signifies a shot that we've only seen come across a few players in NHL history as far as, it, as, far as its um, effectiveness and its accuracy. And above all else, man, just the desire to keep doing it and, and to keep excelling and to maybe the Gretzky record is the carrot in front of him, I don't know, but to, to, to do it and to do it the right way. Real brief, you know, I was at the Board of Governors meeting this week in, in Palm Beach and I, I was talking with Ted Leonsis and you know, one of the things we, we talked about was this idea that Ovechkin has come back on this contract extension, but he didn't come back to just be a third liner or to, to pop in on the power play and score some goals. Like, he wants to remain a top-line relevant player, and that's an incredible thing for a player that's played as long as he has and accomplished what he's had. Um, Joe B. said this morning, Joe Beninati, he was on with me um, on radio uh, said that, you know, here he is, 30, age 37, and you mentioned it, and he doesn't appear to be slowing down, but he he kind of, you know, he didn't make the analogy. I made it after he said it, but he said his skill of being the greatest goal scorer and hand-eye coordination goal, you know, shooter, uh, perhaps in the history of the game, it's one of those things that never, ever leaves you. And I made the analogy to a basketball shooter. You know, anybody that's played basketball in their life knows, you know, the guys that are shooters, they never lose it. You know, they can be 60 years old playing in a, in a, in a men's league or in a pickup game, and they can still shoot it. Um, do you agree with that kind of analogy when it comes to Ovechkin? And does it enhance the chances that he's going to be around for, you know, several more years? Yeah, no, I think that's a good analogy, and you're right about about the shooters. I think it's it's the same kind of thing. The big difference between you know basketball and hockey, obviously, is the amount of uh, up and down and, and physical toll that hockey takes on the body um, when you're skating the length of the ice. You know, yeah, you do get off the ice for your, your your shifts and stuff, but you're still exerting an incredible amount of energy, and you're still taking a physical beating in these games, 82 times a season. Um, the thing about the thing that I think Joe B's getting at that I completely agree with because I've talked to other people about it in the last few years with regards to Ovechkin and this record chase. <clears throat> there are some goal scorers that rely on speed, and they rely on slashing through opposing defenses. Um, and then once those legs go, it, it changes. You know, you think about guys like Patrick Marlowe, for example, who was a great goal scorer for the Sharks for a long time. I mean, once he started to lose that elite speed. His, his game changed, right? So with Ovechkin, yeah, when he came up with the Caps, it was like watching a comet. Like that guy would absolutely like streak from one end of the ice to the other, score electrifying goals. Um, it was sort of a signature thing. But 
he was never reliant on that speed to score goals. And I think that's the big thing for, for Ovi is that, you know, as we've seen him age and maybe get a little bit less passionate about playing defense as he gets older and things of that nature, like his, his, the way he scores goals hasn't atrophied. It, it hasn't left him because um, it's something that can carry through as he gets older because it's not reliant on some of those aspects of a player's game that sort of you lose as you get older. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, where does he rank for you on the all-time greatest offensive goal scorers in the history of the game? He's the best goal scorer of all time already. Like he's he's a better goal scorer than Gretzky, and and I and I say that with respect to Wayne and and the numbers that he put up um, in a completely different era, because like what Ovechkin has done against the best goaltending the league has ever seen against the most number of teams the league has ever seen, the highest overall quality of talent the league has seen. He's done it through defensive systems. He's done it against incredible defensemen. He's done it against a better league than Gretzky did it in and a better league than Gordie Howe did it in. Um, And all of those things combined to to have scored 800, uh, to me, makes him the best goal scorer of all time, whether or not he catches Gretzky or not. Just to, to have done it now, is is to have done it at uh, at at a time in the NHL that it is so much harder to score goals, or at least it was until like the last two years. <laughs> yeah. But overall, he's done it at a time when uh, goal scoring was, was a lot a lot harder than it was for for Gretzky, um, and and to have done what he's done is is just remarkable. Who's in the conversation for number two? Oh, I think Gretzky probably. I mean, Gretzky. You know, uh, Gordy was an incredible goal scorer. Uh, Brett Hull is up there, too. Messier is up there, too. Um, I am intrigued uh, to see where Connor McDavid ends up by the end of his career. I mean, I, he's putting up gargantuan offensive numbers during the early part of his career. This season, he has really put a, an onus on, on putting the puck in the net. He currently leads the NHL in goal scoring. Uh, so that's a, that's. I mean, I, I, he, I don't think he's, he's a risk to catch Ovi, like if Ovi sets the Gretzky record, because Connor hasn't had those like 50-goal, 60-goal seasons like Ovechkin did early in his career. But he's, he's the one guy that I look at and say, okay, what, what are we going to end up with here um, statistically for this player? Because it just seems like he can post up numbers at will. Um, you answered the question, and I, I figured that was the answer in terms of the greatest uh, offensive goal scorer of all time. Here's a trickier one. Where does Ovechkin rank on the all-time list of greatest players? We did a book uh, a few years ago, um, me and a couple colleagues, that was our own version of the NHL 100. Right. And, um, and we did rank the top like 20 players. And I have to go back and look to see where he, he, he fell, but I want to say if you if you rank him amongst forwards, he's obviously deep inside the, the top ten. If you rank him amongst all players, it's a, it's a tougher conversation. He he might be hovering around ten. He might be just outside top ten. I mean, when you start talking about greatest players of all time, you are talking about a total package of player. And with due respect to Ovechkin, you know the, he doesn't necessarily have the all around game of a Sidney Crosby, for lack of a better comparison. Right. Um, so while if you're looking at this generation, the, the Sid Ovi, Magic Bird, NHL version generation, I think I think Sid's probably higher on the list of all-time greats just because of all of the things he does. Um, but Ovechkin, there's no question that I think he's he's uh, 
top 15 all time every any position me probably top 10 all time amongst forwards would it have changed any had they won another cup or two no i just think it's the way he plays i just think it's his game i mean he's he's an elite goal scorer underrated playmaker too i think that's one aspect of Obi's game that always gets overlooked is that it's not like he's putting up uh you know numbers where he's not creating goals for his line mates and, and picking up assists so i think he's been an underrated playmaker um you know, I don't think the team success part of it really would factor into, you know, his place amongst the immortals. But I do think, though, as a as a baseline thing, winning one obviously helps. When the Capitals won, uh, I wrote an essay about Ovechkin, and one of the points I made is that I'm I'm relieved. I remember that yeah. when he yeah when he goes into the Hall of Fame. We don't have to have that conversation now. Like we we can just celebrate the guy for the the player that he was for the records that he set, um, for the way that he, I mean, absolutely revived hockey in Washington and built an incredible fan base on his back and and not have to worry about having those. But he never won a cup conversations that would have dogged him because, you know, the problem, Bob, you know, it's Ovechkin's career has not been without on-ice criticism. He's getting a lot of off-ice criticism now because of the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, yeah. and, and, and rightfully so. But there's always been critics of his game. There's always been people that have said that, like, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that, he doesn't back-check, all this other stuff. And, and there have been times when, you know, people have written books about Ovechkin and, and you know, and being a coach killer and things of that nature. So to take that off their plate, to take off the he-never-won thing off their plate is a really, really important thing and, and really, I think, clarifies how how great he is without having to have any caveats about it. Yeah, I think one of the things, um, Greg, really was, you know, he's your best player, and yet they kept losing these Game 7s, many of them at home. And even though, you know, he played well in some of those series, he didn't necessarily have the greatest of seventh and deciding games. And so there was always that question of, well, how can he be what everybody thinks he is if he can't get his team through as a one seed against an eight seed in the first round? Right, and then and then of course, like not only do they finally win, but he wins the con Smythe in the process. Right. I mean, he spikes the football, right? It's yeah. like not only not only do I get my ring, but I'm the reason we got the ring. And so that whole thing was was like the the perfect counter argument against anything people said about his. Uh, his prowess or his clutch play in, in the playoffs. And, and again, like just to have him put it to bed and have the focus completely on his accomplishments as a player um, and not team success, which again is something that sometimes is out of his control. I mean, look, a lot of those early Capitals teams that weren't finding success in the playoffs was not because of Alex Ovechkin. It was because, you know, Alex Semin pumped a hundred shots on goal and couldn't put one past Yaroslav Halak. <laughs> yeah. like Halak, Halak is a name that will live in infamy because I think yeah, I many mean, people believe that may have been their best team in 2010. Oh yeah, yeah, and and so again to, to have Ovechkin, you know, excel through all those years with different casts, and you think back to those early Caps teams, you know, the the young guns teams. It, it kind of reminds me of something I talked about with Leonsis recently. Um, in the sense that the, the Gretzky record is something that Leonsis obviously wants to see Obi break, but the record that maybe means more to Ted than anything is the fact that Ovechkin's going to have done this with one team. And, you know, Gretzky did it with multiple teams. Gordie Howe did it with multiple teams. Ovechkin's going to set this record uh, as a capital and having only played as a capital. And if you want to talk about unbreakable records, to have that amount of goals with one franchise right. in a salary cap era when Ovechkin's played his entire career is 
is nothing short of remarkable. Yeah. I wonder, why do you think that is? Why do you think he has stayed? I mean, the first contract obviously was 13 years, but why do you think he's been so comfortable here? So it's a combination of a couple things. I mean, he obviously loves DC. Yeah. Um, he obviously loves Ted. Um, he's really, I talked to Ovechkin about that before the season as well, about like um, when he became, you know, the, the all time leading scorer for, with one franchise. And he said, you know, he's now, he's now, capital fans that came to games of kids <laughs> that are now like in their 20s and, and have grown up and have kids of their own and, and he's, he's been a part of this family for his entire career and, and you know I've always said this about free agents in hockey that like they, they don't ever want to leave their stuff right they don't ever want to like go and move their stuff to another place they just want to be where their stuff is and his stuff's in D.C. And, and, and there's no reason for him to ever have left the real remarkable thing though to flip it around to the team is the fact that the Capitals have remained as consistent and relevant and contending sure. um, as they've been, um, and never had a reason to look to move them or or to move on to a new thing. You think about the Chicago Blackhawks right now, and you know if I told you back after their their third cup that Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves would both probably not be Blackhawks anymore um, and may not finish their careers in Chicago, you would have said I was nuts. Like those guys seem like lifers. But the minute, you know, you never know when, when, when the worm's going to turn on your franchise and all of a sudden you have to start thinking about rebuilding or, or whatever. And, and it's, so it's a tribute to, to the Capitals that they've never had to go through that while Ovechkin's been here. And he's never had to have that, that heart-to-heart conversation of, well, would it be better if I left? It's never happened. And, and that's a remarkable run for a franchise. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, New York or L.A. or, you know, Chicago wouldn't have been cities that Ovechkin would have embraced. But I think the international nature of this city, and then I think what you said, they've been good, and they have created, he has created by being here, um, a massive jump in the size of the fan base. And, and by the way, and I talked about this on radio, like it's not even a debate. Alex Ovechkin is the greatest team sport athlete in the history of this town, you know, especially of the last half century. I mean, Walter Johnson and Sammy Baugh are, you know, are, are in the conversation if you're going to go back and, and, and talk about the history of sports. But, like, it's not even close. Like, Daryl Green, I guess, would be the next one. If we're going to include college players, Patrick Ewing had quite a four years at Georgetown. But, like, he's the – on the one team, and you know this, and we've talked about this in the past, but on the one team that for a long period of time was irrelevant in this city – He's become the greatest team sport athlete in the history of this city. It's not even close. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was in D.C. When, when that arena was a hole in the ground, you know, and, and, and they were moving there and no one was really sure what it was going to mean for the fan base and, and what was going to happen. And in his early years, nobody was showing up. I remember they were just giving away tickets. Like they were papering the building to get people to come to the Capitol when Obi was there as a rookie. And then they didn't have to do it anymore because not only was he an attraction and not only did the team around him get better, but, but you can't underestimate that for like a good decade, maybe even 15 years, he made the team cool. Like it was cool to be a Caps fan. Yeah. Like you, it was a party. Like you'd go down to, to MCI or Verizon or whatever you name it Capital was one, at that point, Capital One. And then, and then you know, you'd go to the bars and you'd go see the game, and you go to the bars afterwards, and it was like it was like following a college team. Like it was very much that we're all doing the same chants and we're wearing the same color and we're there to see the to root on the same team kind of vibe. And um, and 
that to me was always born from Ovechkin and his attitude, his swagger, and the way he played. Like they weren't just a good team; they were the team that shot their own music video in, in a, at a, a bar in Falls Church, you know, and showed it on the jumbotron. Like they were, they were like the cool, the cool kids, and, and that definitely was something that was a trickle down from from Ovechkin and his his outside personality. Again, like the the Mick Jagger to Sidney Crosby to John Lennon. Uh, the you know the the Magic Johnson the Sidney Crosby's Larry Bird like there was always going to be that comparison of one guy was a rock star and one guy was milk toast. Yeah, um, definitely. All right, two more for Greg Wyshynski. Um The first uh, is Ovechkin related. The second is just about the team right now. Uh, the team's playing well. So, assuming health, uh, does he pass Gretzky and when? Um, he he. I think he's going to pass Gretzky. I think the trajectory is there and. As we're seeing now this season, like even even if he starts slow, uh, it, it, it's it's going to pick up and he's going to he's going to do the thing. Um, if you go based on his career goals per game average, it's going to take around 154 games. Um, so that's sometime in early 2024, 25. That's if he doesn't miss time. That's if he can keep the scoring rate where it is. Um, so that's the projection right now. Um, if, if there's a, a downtick in his productivity, I still think he's going to be okay. He's banked so many goals. He's still productive. And like we talked about before, the way he scores tells you that he's going to still be able to do it. And, you know, the other thing that Ted and I talked about at the uh, Board of Governors is the fact that they've made the promise to him that they're not going to rebuild while he's here. Like, they're going to remain competitive, maybe to their detriment. <laughs> you know, maybe it's better to try to, like, tank at some point to try to get like a, a top pick and, and come you know start developing the next phase of this franchise when Ovechkin's no longer there but they're going to keep the team competitive they're going to try for the playoffs every year and part of that was you know to try to surround Ovechkin with the best talent possible so he can break this record and um and they've made that promise to him and he's promised that he's not going to settle for being a third liner who pops in a few goals in the power play once in a while like he wants to be a relevant player for them so it's 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 a really interesting sort of symbiotic thing between him and the team as far as like their future, and again, like you can make the argument that the Capitals should probably, given their the age of their core, be transitioning into something else right now. But the bottom line is that he's made this team countless millions of dollars over the years. Like he is he has been an ATM machine for this franchise, and if you if there's any guy in this league where you structure your team for the next couple of seasons just for his benefit, it'd be Alex Ovechkin because that's how important he's been to the franchise. Uh, I have an additional question on that. How will Gretzky receive it? I don't know anything about what Gretzky and Ovechkin's relationship is. Will he cheer it on or not? They're friends. Like They've got a relationship now, and, and part of the mutual respect, I think, is the fact that Ovechkin is attempting to do this as a relevant player. Like it's, we've seen so many records in sports sure. set where the guy is like broke down, str- struggling to hang on, barely getting over the finish line. And that's not Ovechkin. And I think Gretzky, from what I understand is a, is a huge fan of that. The other thing too, is you have to remember Wayne is, Wayne is the reason Wayne's awesome is that he's like the ultimate hockey nerd. Like he's a guy that famously has put on disguises to go to the hockey hall of fame to look at stuff. Now, most of it's his stuff, so maybe he just, like, misses it. I don't know. But, like, he, yeah. he, he's just a real hockey nerd. And so because of that, you have to remember that when he was breaking Gordie Howe's records for points and for goals, Gordie 
was on the road with him. Like he was there for some of those games. Like he was he was rooting on Wayne to break his records. And and Wayne's carried that forward. Like Gretzky's going to be there on the road with the Capitals when Ovechkin is close to breaking his record. Um, and he's he's talked openly about how he hopes that that Ovechkin oh, does it. That's interesting. And, and I think that I think that's genuine. I, yeah. I mean, listen, none of, none of us want our names around. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. But, 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 it, but he's not doing what Bruce Smith did at the end of his career for the sack record here in Washington. Um, Precisely, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this team, you know, you said, you know, keeping the team competitive. Do you? They've won five in a row, but do you see this team at the end of the year being a playoff team? I had them just missing. Um, I think, they're, I mean, they're, they're doing what they need to do right now, which is to play well right before – hopefully some more reinforcements arrive and, and obviously playing well despite losing uh, Darcy Kemper for right. a little bit. Um, so Charlie Lindgren's really been a, a self-great pickup for them in the offseason to stabilize that position. Um, but here's the thing. I don't think they're as good as Carolina, and I don't think they're as good as Pittsburgh. Um, I don't know if they're as good as the Rangers. I'd probably say they aren't. Uh, I think they're probably around the same level as the Islanders, but the real X factor in that division is the Devils, like who all of a sudden, despite hitting a bump in the road lately, banked a ton of points yeah. at the beginning of the season. They, they look very, very good, um, and they look like a playoff team. So that changes the math a little bit for the Capitals, and, and, I, and I do wonder at the end of the day if, if the top three spots in that division are locked up, and all of a sudden you're talking about a wild card, we're going to have the Islanders, Rangers, and and uh, you know, teams from the Atlantic Division uh, all vying for those spots. It, it may not be; they may get squeezed out, it, but it won't be for lack of trying. Uh, thank you for doing this, as always. Hope you're well. Happy holidays to you. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Great job by Greg uh, Wyshynski on Ovechkin. And yeah, you know the Caps uh, are not in the playoffs right now. Uh, the season, you know, is ten games away from the halfway mark, and right now. Um, they're sitting there in their own division in sixth place uh, with 34 points. But they have won five games in a row, and it's a long season. All right, uh, that's it for today. Back tomorrow with Tommy.